Okay, so today we are uh, learning the portion of Ada, and um, we'll discuss a little bit about the. We'll discuss a little bit. It just started. We'll dis- we'll discuss a little bit about the story that we read that um, Hashem says to Moshe. Uh, that Paro might ask you for a sign uh, to prove you're telling them that Hashem has told you to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. Uh, Who are you? Who says that you're speaking the truth? I mean, who says, who's Hashem? Show me that there is credibility, he says. So he's saying, Hashem says that Paro might ask you to show him some proof that what you're saying over here is really going to happen. So Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, go tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it in front of Pharaoh and it should turn into a snake. So it says Moshe and Aaron came to Pharaoh and they did so as Hashem has instructed. Aaron threw the staff in front of Pharaoh, in front of his servants, and it turned into a snake. So Pharaoh also calls his his wise people and his necromancers, the machashvim, the, the magicians over there, and they also did the same thing, the Khartoum and Mitzrayim. They took their sticks with their Belahateim. They're kind of whispering various kinds of hocus-pocus ma- magic. And they turned their snakes, their sticks into snakes as well. They threw down their sticks and they turned into snakes. And the verse says that the staff of Aaron swallowed their stick. And we'll talk a little bit about this story, this incident over here in the Chumash. And we'll also try to bring out from the Rebbe's Sicha about a lesson that we can learn from the story about how we need to uh, relate to other people and how we need to try to... Even when we have to discipline or we have to put down rules, the right way to do it. Uh, a lesson that we can learn from the story that took place between, from this story over here in the Torah. But first, this incident here is not the first time in this discussion in which the staff turned into a snake. This was actually in the previous Parsha. Over there was again, a similar thing. Moshe Rabbeinu says to God, if I'm going to come to the Jewish people, I'm going to tell them God sent me, uh, the whole Maisa, they're not going to believe me. This is already not Pharaoh, this is the Jewish people. They're not going to believe me. They're going to say, Hashem didn't appear to you. This whole Maisa, you made it up. So, So Hashem says, take the stick. Again, the same thing. Throw it in front of them. It'll turn into a snake. So he goes, he throws the, for them, he throws into a, it turns into a snake. So 
Moshe gets scared. He runs away. So Hashem says, go, go for the tail. He grabs the tail, and the snake turns back into a stick in the, in the hand of, 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 of Moshe. And then the second thing Hashem says, if they don't believe this, show them another sign. Um, and it turned out that the Jewish people believed, and they did believe. So what is the striking difference between the story with the snake over there with the staff, what took place in the Parsha Shmos, and the way we read it in our, in our Pasuk? Something very interesting, because our Pasuk says they each one threw down their staff, it turned into sticks, it turned into snakes. Now the last four words, five words of the verses, Vayivla mate aroin es matoisum. What does that mean? The staff of Aaron ate up their staffs. So, what does it mean the staff of Aaron ate up their staff? We just said that it turned into a snake. The snake, we said that the staff took into a snake. So the verse seemingly should have said that the snake of Aaron ate up their snakes, not the staff of Aaron ate up their staffs. Because over here, we're talking already about that it became, it's already a snake, it's not a staff. So what does it say, that the staff of Aaron swallowed up their staff? Why doesn't it say that the snake of Aaron? Some Forshim learn, it actually means a snake. But the reason why we call it a staff because it started off as a staff. It used to be a staff. So it was actually a... You got the front seat today. Yes. See, that's where you get rewarded for coming late, you know. You get this, it's called... Okay, let's warm up a little bit. Yeah. So, some of us want to say that even though the, pus- the Pusik says that the staff swallowed, but it doesn't really mean the staff swallowed, the stick swallowed, but what it really means is the snake swallowed. And the reason we call it a staff because it started out as a staff. It started as a stick, so that's why we call it a stick, but it doesn't really mean it means a snake. But Rashi says no. Rashi says like this, after the snake turned back and became a stick. Afterwards, it swallowed their stick. So here we have like a much greater miracle. Here, the miracle was not a snake eating up the other snakes, but we have a staff eating up the other staffs. It says la'ach as Rashi learns. Now, why does Rashi learn that way? It seems because in the verse it says staff. So Rashi learns it means staff because it says the stick. Rashi learned the stick. The question is, though, why don't we find this whole story over here? It's a little bit of a, of a puzzle. You know, when I was reading this and I uh, was discussing this, it almost seems like if you read just the Chumash in the very plain scene, it seems like this. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, you go ahead and perform a miracle. Throw, show them aside. Throw the staff, it'll turn into a snake. Good. 
Now, it turns out, Paro is not impressed. Paro says, listen, you can do that magic, I can do magic too. He calls his Khartoumim and he says, look, come on, let's see. They go and do the same thing. So now already there is a dilemma created over here. What do we do? They, they can do the same thing we can do. So it seems like spontaneously and as a response to what they did it seems like spontaneously as a result of what they did that all of a sudden Hashem comes up with another plan or Hashem makes another miracle, a new miracle. So originally, sort of see, we didn't know what's going to happen. We thought we're going to throw, to make the trick, turn a staff into a snake. They're going to be impressed. But they're not impressed with it. They can say, we can do the same thing. And after they didn't do this, so then you had the stick. Later on, eventually swallowed their sticks or the snakes, the steps. Either way, but we had the other miracle. Did they know that was going to happen? Oh. So this is exactly the question. Very good question. So... Hashem definitely knew what's going to happen, right? Hashem knows what's going to happen. So the question is, when Hashem sent Moshe and Aaron to do this miracle, did Hashem have in mind the whole miracle, also the staff to later on eat up the other staffs, or we just did the the first part, and then this happened to develop later? So even though in the storyline it looks like almost this happened later, but we can't say that because we know that Hashem knows everything. So we have to conclude logically that really this was part of the whole this was part of the whole sign, the whole mission was now, even though Hashem didn't say that to him, but in the verse it says Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, when Pyro speaks to you, give a sign, you say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it in front of Pyro and let it be into a snake. It doesn't elaborate, tell you what's going to happen in the end. But this was actually the purpose of it to begin with. Was the beginning was what's going to take place. What is the purpose of all these things? Because you see, following this story with the staff, then we know we have the ten makos, we have the ten plagues. Each one of the plagues beating up on Ambaro. So what was necessary for this? So in Hasidus, in the Kabbalah, it speaks of, the, what is the number ten plagues? What is the number of ten plagues? Why is there ten? Because we what? Because they correspond to the ten sefirot, which means in the holiness, the way Hashem energizes the world, He sort of uses in the Kabbalah uses this sefirot through which He channels, the, evolves all the energies, vitalities from Hashem into this world. There is a huge gap, difference between humans, or all creations for that matter, and Hashem. So how does Hashem connect or energize this world? It goes through a process which is known as the Hishtalshulus, the evolution, the chain reaction, in which things come down in a way that it gets concealed, it gets contracted. There is various different of contractions the Kabbalah talks of. Simtsumim, they're known as, or Cyrus hears very little, which means curtains, coverings, blocks, window shades, you know, uh, 
darkening screens. They, they just cover. So at the end of the day, what comes out into the world comes out a very minute amount, a very little bit. So Hashem's light that we do see in the world at all, and this includes Gan Eden, even in the higher worlds, even people or great tzaddikim or souls, all created beings, they're still very finite and they have a very limited access and comprehension of Hashem. So therefore, they only take and they only get through the hishtalshul, through the tzimtzum, is where they get their energy from, their life from. But in order for Hashem, so to speak, to keep the balance, He also created these ten major sfirot, which are the main vehicles or main stops or main uh, places through which the light comes through, he created in the opposite side, which is the called the klippa. The klippa means that opposes the holy side. It's zeh l'umat zeh. One opposite the other. What does that mean? Which means there are also forces also in the number 10. And just like talking something more uh, practical versus abstract, talking about Sfirot, we also deal with the ten Sfirot or the ten powers we have in ourselves, which is also, Hashem says, let's make a man in the image of, uh, of us, meaning in the image of the ten Sfirot. The person is, has the, also the ten powers. So the person has the ten positive forces within themselves which would mean when your intellect and emotion and your actions are involved in good things and positive, connected, those are ten good powers. But there's also opposite them, there's the ten negative powers. So each one, each good power has on the opposite a negative power. That's why during Svirata Omer, you know, we purify, we work on the various different uh, negative tendencies. Now, where do these come from? So the Kedusha, the holiness, the good ones, they come from the Sfirot, from the Ishtalshalos. But the negative things also come, everything comes from Hashem. Everything is energized from Hashem. But they come sort of from the dark side, from the negative side. Which means God also created forces which totally obscure and don't allow, unlike Ishtalshalos, which leaves a little bit light for us to see, that totally obscures and therefore those forces, like Pharaoh represents those forces, they're haughty, they're arrogant, they don't, under, they don't agree, they don't realize, they feel themselves as entities, you know, they don't, they're not subjugated, they don't uh, put themselves down in front of Hashem, they consider themselves entities by themselves, so they give such a small force, it's such a negative force, so it is a force from Hashem, but it's like totally hidden, there's not, you can't even see any light over there. It depends, in the Klippas, there's Klippas, no, you got, there's three Klippas, there's also, I'm not here just to go through the Kabbalah here, but I want to bring out the ten Makos that the Egyptians were smitten correspond, and they, the Kabbalah, they explain it, how each Sphira and each the Dam, the, which is blood, that anger, that is uh, uh, intolerance, 
that's blood, water, frogs connected to water, that's apathy, cold, indifference, don't care. Those can be very negative. And the they can only function as long as they feel that they can hide the light. It's like people who don't want to attribute or convince themselves that what they own, their qualities, is something that they made themselves and they become haughty about it. They don't attribute that somebody gave them that, you know, and they take all their credit. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes you have teenage kids, like, like you support them, and especially when they go off to college sometimes, and you keep on putting money into their account and they're just spending over there, and then they go around thinking, somehow I get the money comes in there, and who, who put it there? But, you know, but they keep on saying, well, I'm rich, you know, I get it. But somebody gives you that. I mean, David gives us everything we have. We sometimes start to think. We don't recognize, well, somebody put you there. Somebody gives it to you. Somebody gave you your talent. Somebody gave you uh, the uh, ability. Somebody gave you life. Somebody's giving you the wisdom. Somebody's giving you, helping you make the choices. And, uh, and like I said, you know, not, not necessarily, you know, the... Uh, the uh, we don't necessarily uh, follow our leaders, whether it's our president, everything, what they say. I mean, they may do some good things. I don't want to get as political, but we know that you don't take credit for yourself and believe that you are somehow uh, uh, earned it and by yourself. You attribute, you say. And we should always say for everything we have, we say, thank you, Hashem, for all your help. Thank you for giving me and, you know, and, and appreciating it. And that's, and that's the truth. So, as long as the clipper can hide, sort of deny, no, you know, I, I'm good on my own. I don't need God. To, to put it in a different level, a lot of people will say to you, I don't know, there's no God, I don't need God. I live by myself, I'm just here. And, you know, it's, it's irrelevant to me, God, you can say. But they don't have an appreciation of that. They really think that they're here on their own. They're feeding off of the clipper, which thinks that it's by itself. Like the verse says about Pharaoh, he claimed that he's independent of God. He doesn't need God. But what happens? They can only deny God if there is a sort of a blockage that you don't see. But as soon as there's some sort of a revelation and you see the hands of God, so you can't anymore... God reveals. So all the clippers, they uh, sort of fall apart totally. So there's a way of dealing with each one of the clippers, which means if we want to do it in ourselves, or if we talk about our own general, our life, we have various different qualities and we have various different faults. Each fault needs to be addressed individually. Maybe we'll call them in general 10. So we have to deal, those are our little clippers in ourselves. That's the Nefshah Bahamis. Our own, you know, jealousies, insecurities, things that we have that we want to perfect. So there's a way. So there's a, you know, there's the Makas, there is a way. There's the means that to try to challenge and to fix things that are negative within yourself, to heal. That's a very specific addressing each one, how to fix it, to find ways to 
deal with it, to, to figure out. Those are specific markers, those are ten. But then there is a general sort of, a general understanding and the general submission to Hashem of saying, you know what? I want to do what's right, or I want to be connected. I, I do appreciate the fact that everything comes from Hashem, and therefore, you know, without going into specifics, addressing any individual issues, the general issue. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu came to Aaron before the Tanakhis, this was sort of an introduction. This was God's introduction before we're going to go into the specifics, into the details, into the various different makos that are going to address the blood, the, the coldness, the, the apathy. As you know, that, that joke, the one asks, what's the difference between indifference and apathy? So he says, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so these are all, these are all um, specific emotional issues that we have to grow out, grow with, and work through. But then there is the introduction. Pharaoh, before we start with Pharaoh, there has to be this idea of Vayivla Mate Aaron Es Matoisum. That the staff of Aaron eats up their staffs. Which is the general idea of telling them who is in charge of the world. Who is in control who dominates the world, and who is the one who is, at the end of the day, has the last word. That's the... Hashem wanted to show to Pharaoh the Egyptian, before we get to the individual makos, mm-hmm. and in this context, Rebbe asks, in this context, it's not so important to emphasize that there was a great miracle over here, that... It was a stick, because it wasn't about whether a stick eats up snakes or a snake eats up other snakes or a thing. Yeah, the fact that a, a stick can eat up the other snakes, that shows, you know, that uh, uh, not supernatural, that shows that a stick, a stick that's Hashem's stick, not a snake, a stick of Hashem, has the power to overcome and stronger than Pharaoh. So, you got no chance against Hashem. First thing is, Hashem says, we'll swallow up. And that's why the Rebbe says, this was actually the purpose. It wasn't the purpose just turning a staff into a snake. It's not correct to say that this sort of happened spontaneous only after they did the snakes. Then Moshe Rabbeinu had no choice and he had to do that. No, that was actually the whole introduction. The whole idea was to have his staff overcome them, to swallow them. That was the whole idea from the, to the first place. And the Rebbe says, he brings generally, he says, there's two types of miracles that take place. Sometimes a miracle changes the nature of the item. So before it was A, and now it's B. Take for example, it says, Hashem says to Moshe, put your hand into your bosom, takes it out, it's leprosy. Now he finds himself, his hand is white with the leprosy. Now, when his hand was white with leprosy, that was a miracle. Because where did he get the leprosy from? Took it out of his pocket. Right? All of a sudden. But that leprosy 
actually was leprosy. Now, how does he get rid of that leprosy? That's not just going to go away on its own. Over there, Hashem says to him, put your hand once again into your pocket, and then the leprosy will go away. So what does that mean? That means that there was an actual change over here. Hashem made a miracle that instead of a person getting sick and getting leprosy, he got leprosy just by putting his hand into his pocket. And when he takes it in, when he takes it out, he's full of leprosy. So now, physically, there's a nature of leprosy on his hands. And in order to get rid of that, he has to put his hand again. Let's equate that with another miracle that we're all familiar with, like the miracle of Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, which Hashem blew the wind. So there was a miracle that the wind stood, that the stood the whole time over there. But it doesn't seem like the water actually changed, and they're no longer water, but something was keeping them up against their nature. But as soon as the water stopped flowing, the water comes back down. The nature didn't change. It only changed for the while that the miracle is taking place. Take, for example, the another example of the blood, the, the plague of the blood. When Hashem made the water in Egypt into blood. Does that mean that it became, it had all the qualities of blood? No. Because you see, it says that if a Jew and a non-Jew were both drinking from the same cup of water, the Jew had water and the other one had blood. So what does that mean? So it means that blood didn't, it didn't change the nature. It was only externally what they received from the water, they received blood. What difference does it make? What happens after the miracle is done? So like in the case that we had, we're not talking about why Hashem does different miracles in different ways, but by the case, there's a reason for that too, but we're not discussing now the reason for that. But by the case when Hashem said before to the Jewish people, throw the snake, that staff turned into a snake and it became actually a snake. It was a full-fledged snake. Now we had a snake with all the qualities of a snake. In order for that snake to go back and become a staff, Moshe Rabbeinu had to do it. It had to be a new miracle, an opposite miracle, to undo the previous miracle. First there was a staff that became a snake, and now we're making from a snake back into a staff that had to change. It was a change of, 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 of nature over here. And the Rebbe says that wherever the Torah doesn't tell us that there was actually a change back to the original, we have to assume that as soon as the miracle was over, it just went back to its original state. So by us, with the story with Pharaoh, it says that he threw it, and it turned into a snake. That was the miracle. The assumption has to be that the snake later on went back, because once he's done that, and then from that point, the snake went and ate up their other staffs as well. Not sure exactly how it worked by the their snakes, you know, how their snakes, but I have to assume that their snakes couldn't last that long either. You know, I'm just I'm just assuming that what happened over there. But that's not part of the discussion exactly, but over here the point here is it became a stick. And only after it became a stick did it swallow the other ones. Talking about swallowing up, we know, you know, sometimes 
What does it mean to swallow up? What does it mean to swallow another individual and to swallow somebody up? We know that the ways of the Torah are always pleasant. And one should never use means that a person may, may insult a person, cause them pain, anguish, cause them discomfort. One's approach needs to be always give love, give kindness, compassion, only goodness, only positive, no negative. That's the way to approach, and that's the way to help, and that's the way to teach, and that's the way to bring people back that made mistakes. But yet we also know that sometimes you need you need a stick also sometimes. You need a stick. Sometimes you need a discipline. Sometimes you need to, if you want to say, you need to give a student, you need to give a child, you got to give them some time out. People that you got to discipline, you want to train them. So you got to keep them in the room. They have to, they lose recess or they lose that time out. They get grounded, as they call it, some different methods. And it's called like, it's called like swallowing up. You swallow them, you overwhelm them, and you don't allow them to do what they want because you restrict them. You swallow them up. So here, the Rebbe says we have a very strong message, a very strong lesson. One needs to be always careful that when you're using like a tough medicine or tough love, uh, they call it, uh, what do they call it, love and logic, you know, uh, tough love. If you use that kind of approach, you got to, or you have to use it sometimes, you have to make sure that the toughness that the strictness doesn't come out of anger, out of wanting to get back, or out of vengeance or hatred, uh, trying to settle scores, and things like that. A snake has a venom, wants to bite. Ruby says, over here you see not when it was a snake. When it was a snake, it didn't swallow. Because a snake, if you feel anger in your heart, don't discipline at that time. Don't yell and don't back off at that time. That's not the right time. That's a snake. That's anger. That's no good. If you're going to swallow somebody under those conditions, then you may do more harm than good to the other person if you swallow them up. The first thing is, you must make sure that it should be a mate. A stick, it's cold, it's not anger, it's just a piece of wood. You're doing it because you have to do it. But there is no emotional, there is no, nothing invested in there which causes you to uh, bring out, you know, maybe a mistake, maybe your own negativity, and you're giving it out onto the other person. And then there's another person, another point here the Rebbe brings out. It has to be Mate Aaron. It has to be Aaron's staff. Aaron was a kind man. He was an Isha Chesed. If somebody is to do the discipline, has to be doing it, 
don't give it to somebody who's a difficult or an angry person in general, a person who's not refined in their own emotions. Give it to an Aaron, a staff of Aaron. That's the, that's the right person's staff. That's the person that has the ability. That's the one who's going to make the difference. And that's the way you're going to be successful. And then swallowing up in the, those circumstances that it has to be, when you have to discipline and you have to swallow up, then it's going to be, make sure that it's going to be a positive a positive experience. And um, I guess, you know, we have those uh, circumstances in most of our lives, in most of the time we come across situations. Best thing is not to swallow anybody at all. <laughs> in other words, most of the time is we deal with the, diff- with the situations in a kind, giving way. But when there is no choice, especially, you know, a lot of times, if you're teaching, if you're a school teacher, if you're a leader, you're a leader and you have to set down the rules, a mother at home, there has to be rules in the house. So you come across these, um, these situations. So the message that the Rebbe learns from here is be a stick, don't be, don't be angry, don't be as nachash. Be a stick of Aaron, do it all with compassion. Do it because it has to be done and then you'll be successful. Everybody will uh, benefit from that. I just want to mention that today is a few days late, but it's Chav uh, This is the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, which was on Sunday. Today is Tuesday already. Today is Chavav. And um, the Alter Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe writes, this is what he said. They asked one time, what did the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Hasidus, what did he want? Hasidus, what, what was his goal? What was his ultimate purpose of Hasidus? So he said he wanted that Hasidim should live with brotherly love, with care and concern for each other. That's what he wanted. He wanted they should be like one family. Now, of course, the Torah says you have to love every Jew. But still, there's a difference when somebody is your family or somebody is not your family. I mean, even though we have to, if it's a family. The Alter Rebbe wanted that Hasidim should be one family. Now, you say, well, I'm not a Hasid or whatever. But the Alter Rebbe basically said, whoever is connected to my teachings, to my philosophy, to my predecessors, those who come, follow, or in any way connected, he says, we need to be there for ourselves in a way of one big family, a family that care, respect, and are sensitive to one another. And that is what the goal is. Even if sometimes we have a disagreement and we have to say to the other person, well, you know, what, what you did was wrong, or maybe you didn't think what you did, we shouldn't do it in the way of a, a snake. Do it in the way of a, with a stick. Do it in a way with a... Aaron, do it with kindness. You, know, you can say the things, just maybe something that you said. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have complaints to the rabbi because the rabbi is always <laughs> one person or the other person. But you know, even you have a complaint, you know, that you said something, maybe you weren't careful enough. But if you say it not as a snake, but you say it with a stick, like compassion, and you say it as an arrow with love, then you'll be successful. So the Zchus of the Alter Rebbe, 
should be Megan for us, and we should um, be privileged to follow and help him fulfill his goals because that's what he wanted from us, but it's up to us to live by Daz. He wanted us to be one family, but uh, uh, that's up to us to be like one family. So hopefully we can be like one family. Yeah, go ahead. So Baal was the first Rebbe who had the concept of Chassidus. He was the founder, yeah. The man is the founder of Chassidus. Yeah. He was the first. Was Lubavitch one of the first to define itself, or were others around the same time? The uh, Baal Shem Tov's time, there were mainly uh, the um, Hasidim were mainly hidden Hasidim. A lot of the students at the time of the Baal Shem Tov, they were disguised. They looked like simple, and they would travel to very different communities, just bring the encouragement of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov used for various different functions. You know, like some people will say to you today, oh, Chabad, what does Chabad do? They're shluchim, you know, they're all over the world. They, they spread Yiddishkeit. That's only one aspect we do today because that's a necessity that's going on in the world today. There's a lot of ignorance out there and we're trying to educate, you know, in different places just to teach people about their religion, about their heritage, about Yiddishkeit, just so the people make them aware and hopefully inspire them enough so that they want to belong or they want to try it out, they want to be involved. So that's, that's just, but there's a lot more to it, which means... Uh, there's a philosophy, there's teachings, there's a connection, there's prayer, there's custom, there's tradition, being one family. With, oh, there's a whole lot of things, there's a whole philosophy. But today, you know, sometimes when there's the fire burning, you know, a lot of times people said, you know, when we look at our grandparents or great-grandparents, especially those people that come from countries that didn't have an opportunities, you know, they didn't go to college, they weren't educated. Is it their fault? No, they were fighting to exist. They didn't have bread to eat on the table. They were, these people were, could have been the greatest professors. They could have been the greatest scholars. They didn't have any, any chance for that because just to survive was, uh, was a miracle. And everybody was fighting for survival. So it's not for their fault. So there is a time that, you know, when it is a very dark time for the Jewish people and people are suffering, uh, Chabad and the Baal Shem Tov, they were trying to help the people, whatever was necessary at that particular time. At that particular time, the Jewish people were very, were disenfranchised. And a lot of, so they had a group of, of learned people who, who, who belonged and they made for themselves a hierarchy and they were very well accepted. But the uh, non-learned people, they were religious because most of the people at the time were, were observant, but they didn't feel that they belonged anywhere because the very religious people didn't accept them, or the Talmud Chacham, the scholars didn't accept them, and they didn't really treat them with respect. And the other hand, the, uh, the Goyim and the other Jew haters were causing the Yid a lot of trouble. So they almost felt that in, the Jewish people suffered a lot in the, physically and uh, financially. The Goyim were there. There's a lot of service for the Jewish people. So they didn't really, so a lot of Jews chose to leave the Jewish religion altogether just to make their lives better. They didn't. So at that point, the Baal Shem Tov worked a lot to encourage the masses of the people by telling them that they are important. In a lot of ways, you know, uh, if I can elaborate, it's just my, my, my thinking, and I'm not here to uh, say that this is right, but I think 
in a lot of shuls sometimes, you know, when you go into some Orthodox shul, it's not today, it's different, but in some Orthodox shuls, at least in the past, it used to be, if somebody didn't live up to the standards of the shul, uh, they would look down. If they came into an Orthodox shul, you know, maybe if they came to shul by car or something like that, the people would look at them funny. Or the people, so the other people that came to shul didn't feel comfortable coming to the shul, even if you didn't tell them anything. And even, just the way you looked, just the way you, you know, they felt, they felt, so what they did was, so they, they went to the shul where they feel comfortable. So what happened? So, you know, so they, they said, okay, you know, I'm not really accepted, I don't really belong. And they, so the idea is, of course, we're not giving up on any of the religions till the uh, dot on the yud, which means exactly everything has to be followed to the T, but we don't have to make somebody feel that they are less important or that they're somehow there's something wrong with them because they don't live up to your standard. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't concentrate on what they don't do, but we concentrate on what they do do, not on what they don't do. And one has to have an appreciation and one can't judge. That doesn't mean that you're approving or you're saying it's okay. It's not about that. It's about telling to the other person, getting to him the message or to her the message. You are in God's eyes as important as the great scholar. If you're not there yet, we can help you get there. When you're ready to get there, you know, we'll be there for you. But that's not a reason to alienate them, to get them, make them feel uncomfortable. Reach out to them. Don't have to encourage them not to do or not encourage them, but you are not pushing them away. You're allowing for them. I mean, this philosophy has been... The Balshemto went out. The Balshemto didn't diminish the value of the Torah scholarly learning. But what the Balshemto did, he said... That's not the only way to serve God. That's not the only value. It's maybe very important. It could be the most important. But when a simple Jew does a simple mitzvah, there may be value to God more than the great scholar learning Torah. We don't know what God appreciates more. And he came up. At that time, the Vashemtov's work was necessary. So therefore, Vashemtov really went out. He was telling stories from the Medrash. He was telling people in Karizim. He was just doing outreach work through his different students. He was a brilliant scholar, and he was a great tzaddik, and he was the founder of this, this movement. But you don't see so much at the uh, level of his teachings, and it was mostly getting people to start to understand that God wants your heart, not only your mind. And if you have the heart, and you mean it, you do it all the heart, God appreciates it. That's what he can. Rahman Ali God wants... Want your heart? Sometimes it's better to do a little without, with with kavana, than doing a lot without kavana. It talked to the people, and he saved myriads and myriads of people came and were saved because the Balshemtov spoke to their hearts, spoke to their soul. He encouraged them. He gave them a reason to. And in in a certain sense. Again, that's what we try to do as well. That's what Chabad tries to do today and other organizations is to talk to the heart of the people and to encourage them by pointing out to them that they're good, really good. Not only 
because we want them to do something else. No, the way they're doing, they're really good, and God loves them, loves us all, and if they do a mitzvah, and to try to help everybody in their journey, if we can help anybody in their journey, you try to do that. Now, the Baal Shem Tov had a student, I don't know how we got into it, but you asked the question, but the Baal Shem Tov had a student who was named the Magid of Mizrich. Originally, the son of the Baal Shem Tov took over the leadership, but one year later, it was evident to everybody that he couldn't really do it. So the son took over, so the Magid of Mizrich took over. He was a very powerful and very great uh, genius and rabbi again. And to him, he collected many of the greatest minds and the greatest tzaddikim of that generation. Um, some went to the Goen of Vilna, to Vilna, to the Misnagdim, and some went to the Magid of Mizrich. The students of the Magid of Mizrich, later on, most of them started their own dynasties. So Chabad is a dynasty from the Magid of Mizrich. The Alter Rebbe, Shneir Zaman, or the Rav, whose yard is Chabad Tevis, he started the branch of Chabad Chesidus. Chabad has its traditions, it has its customs, but Chabad is a whole, is a whole lifestyle, but one of the main things of Chabad is that it has the teaching of Hasidus, which we spend a lot of time studying and learning about creation in order to get a sense and a feeling of our privilege to do a mitzvah, our privilege to learn Torah, so that we do our study in our mitzvahs with love of Hashem, with, with with appreciation to learn about how lucky we are that we can that we could do a mitzvah. What it means that when we do a mitzvah, we actually are really connecting with Hashem in a level which nobody can connect. And if we learn about it and we know about it, so hopefully we'll do the mitzvah with more enthusiasm, with more elasticity, with more care, with more be more careful. You know. A lot of things we do, but the things, some things we care more about other things. So let's say we do a mitzvah. Sometimes we, we do it like doing other things, but sometimes we do it, we're into it. You know, like I said, sometimes you go to visit your mother, okay, or you call her on the telephone. Okay, so sometimes, okay, Ma called you, I did my mitzvah for today, hang up the phone. So okay, so maybe you did it, but you sit and you talk. You hear her nudge you or to tell you and ask you the same question ten times. <laughs> you know. Okay, but then you say, okay. Then you're saying, okay, I'm doing a mitzvah. Every minute of the day, I'm doing a mitzvah. So then you're doing... Or, same thing is, you're afraid. You don't want to do... You don't want to go against Hashem's will because you have... You're going to get punished. You're going to get uh, an accident. You just don't want to do anything which is against... You feel privileged to be able to listen to Hashem. You don't want to do anything against it. It gets a feeling. You're not going to cross the street without looking. Uh, maybe a car isn't going to hit you. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'll just cross. I'll take my chances. You know. Yeah. So somebody who doesn't care really, you know, you'll cross the streets. You know, a car will come. You know, I go into the grocery store. It's laying in the kosher aisle. I think somebody once said that this used to be kosher. It's probably kosher. <laughs> so that's like, well, we'll go. We'll go with the street, and you know, maybe you won't get hit. Maybe. But if you're afraid, you say, you know, 
I don't want to eat something that's kosher. I really want to be careful about it. So I'm not going to touch it unless I'm actually going to check the label first. I want to first make sure that what I'm eating is really good. So there's a difference, both in doing and not doing, how much you care about what you're doing or not doing. You can just do it and get it over with. Especially, Al-Turabi didn't want just to daven and say, oh, love God, your God, and then move on. He wanted you to actually experience a little bit of that love. That's per- perhaps the whole purpose of people is to experience that special love to Hashem. But anyways, we got carried away. This is what the Alter Rebbe taught us and his yard site. So hopefully we inspire you to follow in his uh, ways and continue to love Hashem and fear Hashem and do the right things. What most important is treat people properly without anger and like Arna Cohen with love.